but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 120. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Nadal's masterful return to tennis after having not played much at all this year. He won in Monte Carlo. We'll be talking about Jared... Shania Twain. (laughs) No, we won't. Never again, in fact. Listen, you've been on your high horse with Shania Twain with this Donald Trump thing. Since it's happened. I have. It's like you were... I have. You know why? Because I never liked her ass, like not once. And then she went on Drag Race and did a piss poor job. Mm-hmm. And one of the queens like poured her heart out yes. to Shania. And Shania was like, okay, thanks. You know, those things may be true. But I will not have you pretend like you are above us all. Because you've been out here standing privately for Kanye West in spite of everything. What? For years. Um, not since Mm. the trip to Trump Tower. Actually, since the Mm. Kardashian marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but still, it's like, well, you know, Kanye's still a genius. There's always that undertone, right? No. You haven't been been writing him off the way I have. And I haven't been throwing that in your face. But know that Shania Shania is out here acting a fool. You're Because the... (laughs) (laughs) No, the the sad thing is that... The issue here, too, is that I grew up liking Shania Twain. You've always held that against me. Always. Mm. I mean, she is mainly responsible for Taylor Swift, so, like, do with that what you will. The thing about Kanye is that he is a once-great artist who no longer has anything to say, and that's sad. And I've always maintained that he was never that great, and that's been my perspective. All right. And he's gotten away with a lot of fucker because people give him a free pass because they think he's that great. He was. Mm, we'll have to agree to But now to he's disagree. on Twitter tweeting out these banal ninth grade philosophy tweets it's just it's not interesting the greatest thing he ever did was to load up george bush back in the day Mm. since then we're very far from that exactly like the taylor swift beyonce thing that was rude as fuck and totally out of line and oh i rather i rather enjoyed that no no no. but screw (laughs) him for making me feel somewhat like i'm on taylor swift's side just even five percent that's crazy because i've never felt that emotion (laughs) Anyway, we're here to talk about tennis. This is a tennis podcast. Yeah, and okay, so there's Nadal. We're going to be talking about him. We're going to be talking about Jared Donaldson. That madness <laughs> <laughs> that happened. I can't even it take it like that it, seriously. It feels like it was two weeks ago. The Donaldson stuff, the Caroline Wozniacki interview that she gave, which will we will be getting into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yet again at a tennis tournament where these on-court advertising is fucking up players' lives. Thanasi Kokonakis is the latest one who's leaving the Monte Carlo site on crutches because of these, what, what do you even call them? These little, uh, the like, bump- cushion things. Bollards or bumpers yeah. or whatever. We saw so many gifts of players tumbling over them. Zverev... <laughs> Picked it up and launched it across the court. <laughs> I mean, so we'll, we'll see what happened there mm-hmm. in a bit. We have a few words for Darko Grinkarov. If that is your real name. Let's start at the top with Rafael Nadal. Rafa has been gone for a while. 
right? He played and made the quarterfinals, I believe, in Australia and then had to retire mid-match. Tried to come back in Acapulco, couldn't quite get on court because he had a recurrence of the same injury. Finally came back at Davis Cup and we saw him turn in a comprehensive win against Alex Verve in best of five sets. Mm -hmm. And so he shows up in Monte Carlo now, which has often been the start of his tour de force darling. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's what really kicks his season into gear. It's the start of the red clay swing. And my God, did you expect what we saw this week? Well, I expected a Nadal title, but I was surprised that he did so with so little in the way of resistance. He wasn't taken past 6-4 in any sets. He had, a, you know, not an easy draw for the standard of players that are in the draw, he faced team who is has beaten him on clay and who's a big clay rival at this point. Dimitrov, Nishikori, who has completed a, a pretty impressive resurgence. He's been out for many, many months with injury, played some challengers, was just really grinding it out. And more but, importantly, Nishikori is somebody who's pushed him on clay in the past. Yes. This is a, a draw that was full of kind of dangerous players, not not like players to be really scared of, but if he wasn't feeling 100%, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. It's one thing to say that Nadal didn't really have much resistance. It's another thing to beat team 6-love, six 6-2 six <laughs> yeah. and win the first nine games of that match and to reduce team to having the crowd cheering for him winning a game in that second set. And that was a team who had just beaten Novak Djokovic in what was a pretty good performance. I was impressed. I, I thought his game... His game looks like it's coming together well on clay. He's just a a complete player on the surface. He was also coming back from injury as well. Mm -hmm. But the performance against Djokovic made it seem like he could have mustered a battle against Nadal. Yeah. And I think team fans would have to see that match against Djokovic as encouraging. Because we've seen a different Djokovic at this tournament. Um, Team's backhand is amazing, as you know, but his forehand is just so great on the surface. He can do a lot of things with it. He can just whip it cross-court or inside out. The thing about Team, and we saw it prior to that Nadal match, is he's able to generate incredible pace. And the type of pace from positions that would give Nadal problems. Mm-hmm. If you watch some of those highlights from his first few matches in Monte Carlo, he'd be hitting rifling winners stretched out wide on the backhand on the return. He'd be doing all sorts of things on court to the point where if you're a Nadal fan, you watch that and it, it would give you a little bit of pause heading into that match. Mm-hmm. But then again. <laughs> well, so what does it take to beat Nadal on clay? One of those things is a backhand that can withstand the bounce and the pace that Nadal puts on the forehand. It's a question that I've been thinking about a lot this week. And the person who's come closest to beating him on a semi-consistent basis on clay, meaning winning a few matches, Mm. or at Roland Garros playing tough four or five set matches against him is Djokovic. And that was Djokovic in his absolute prime. That was Djokovic, who was a human backboard, who could run down any ball, turn a, a hopeless position in a rally into a position of strength. And who was not cowed by the pace on his forehand, who had a backhand among the best, a down-the-line backhand among the best ever Mm -hmm. that could withstand Nadal. If you go into a match with Nadal at his best, trying 
to figure out the match based on X's and O's, that's where you're going to get in trouble, mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah. It was somebody like Novak who believed in himself that he could beat Rafa, was entirely comfortable on the clay, had every shot in the book. And what we see now with Nadal, incredibly, after having all this time off and coming back in his first match, it's like he never left. There's just something so comforting about the surface for him that just has his game functioning on so many levels. Right. And I think it's the reason a lot of people can look at his performances on clay over the years and say, oh, well, that's just Rafa on clay. And and sort of look past the the endless hours of work and skill that goes into doing what he does and the athleticism because he makes it look easy and routine when this is something that should be absurd. No player should be able to sustain these kind of performances on one surface. Mm -hmm. Rafa generates incredible bounce on his shots on clay. And the spin that he's able to put on the ball gets a little bit of oomph from the surface, right? That's Mm -hmm. a given. But what he does so well is he mixes pace, trajectory of the ball, angles so incredibly well. Like right. you, you could get into a smash fest with with a uh, Dominic team, where you're just bashing the ball off both wings, and Dominic could probably take him. But then what about when Nadal is casually rallying cross court backhand to team's forehand, and then he pulls that backhand a little bit shorter a little bit more wide and you think that you have the down the line forehand set up and Rafa is there in a flash Mm -hmm. to go down the line to pass to go cross court to do whatever the trouble with playing Nadal is that you never really have him you never really have him beat in any point Mm -hmm. and the shot that for me in especially in the last couple years has served him so well on all surfaces but especially on clays that cross court backhand yeah the angles that he's able to generate with that to set up the forehand it's mesmerizing to watch because when nadal is at his best he's not relying exclusively on his forehand it it will be the most often times will be the kill shot but it's everything else that comes beforehand that sets it up he beat bedene in his first match hachanov in the second team then he beats dimitrov i read an article by Steve Tinier, saying that Dimitrov played some of the best tennis of his life in the first three games against Rafa and still found himself down love three. (laughs) And that kind of encapsulates what it's like to play him on that surface when Mm -hmm. he's going full throttle. And then in the final, he beats Nishikori. And let me tell you, I am so happy to have Clay back. Clay Clay K? (laughs) Well, I'm happy to have Clay back and also Clay K. (laughs) Yeah. So... Kay has been out in the wilderness for a while. He pulled out of a bunch of tournaments last year with injuries. He made it through a few challengers this year. And uh, I admire the way that he's fought himself back into the game. He wasn't looking for wild cards everywhere. He wanted to get match Are play. Are you shady there? No. <laughs> I, I'm really not. Okay. I'm, there's, there's an integrity, but also a... I think, a tennis intelligence Mm. about playing lower-level tournaments and just trying to get matches. And the K that we know is maybe not entirely back, but he's close. He's out here taking the ball early, like he always does, returning with interest, 
played a hell of a match to beat Zverev in the semifinal. Yes, that was a humdinger after losing the first set. Is it possible that the gap between Rafa and everybody else on clay is bigger than it's ever been? I don't know. I I feel like we say that every year. I've, I've never said that. <laughs> I've never said that. This is a new it's, thought to me. Well, it's a strange phenomenon to even entertain at the age of 31. But people have been saying it about Roger last year at the majors. I don't know. I have no, I'm not sure what to measure it against because some of his chief rivals are either diminished or not here. So I think if Djokovic were at his fighting best, things might look quite different. Or even Andy Murray. Yeah, Andy Murray, who it turns out is quite accomplished on clay and can can challenge the very best. He had reached the zenith of his career on clay. The zenith? Wow. Thus far. Like, that was the apex of his clay play before mm-hmm. injuries took a toll on him, right? It felt like yep. his his story had not been entirely written as right. far as his possibilities on the surface. And so he's not present at this point. He's still on, he's on the entry list for Roland Garros. I read that he was setting his sights on Washington as a possible return. He's entered Washington as well. So I, I think he probably is not sure yet where he's going to be ready. Stan Wawrinka is entered in Madrid. Who is another big-time clay right. uh, opponent. A former Roland Garros champion. Last year's final notwithstanding. Sure. But Novak Djokovic is probably the other big story coming out of Monte Carlo. He, his performance was worlds apart from Indian Wells in Miami. He's back with Marion Vida, which is huge. He seems happy, the whole team. It seems like... Peace has returned to the Djokovic camp. Everyone is feeling good, and I'm not surprised that he's starting to play better. He's also saying that he's pain-free for the first time in two years. That has something to do with yeah. it as well. And imagine the weight that that takes off you mentally as well. What, he showed up and beat Leovich 6-1, 6-love or something like that? <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm scared of you. And then he plays Borna Chorch, who has had a very good year who talked with, I believe it was Reem Abelil, about how he took for granted that his progress would naturally happen mm. after having some success as a teenager and that he's had to go back to the proverbial drawing board to really kickstart his career again, to put the work in, and he's shown and reaped the benefits of that this year. So that was a tough out for Djokovic. And Clay is George's best surface. And he's been playing well on hard courts as well. He's one of the few young guys who's beaten pretty much all the top guys. Mm -hmm. He has a pedigree. So I think Novak is doing a lot of things well and almost everything better than he did in the hard court swing in North America. He seems his movement is kind of getting together. His strokes look good. Maybe just kind of getting that court sense back and playing with a little more aggression. But Dominic is just, I mean, he's just too good on the surface right now for Djokovic to beat him at this point. Like at this stage in his comeback. There's so many variables, tennis being such a, a sport of matchups, for me to make any definitive sense of Djokovic losing to team in a tough match and then team being blown up by Nadal in that fashion. 
Like, right. what, what do you make of all that? Uh-huh. It's so difficult. Well, wasn't it last year that a team finally beat Rafa and then got blown off the court by Djokovic in the following round? So this is something that his team does. And I wonder, over best of five sets, his... I mean, his strokes are quite an undertaking. You know, he puts a lot into every <laughs> into every he, stroke. He puts his back into it. He sure do. And I just wonder, clearly he's in very good shape. But is this a hindrance for him over long matches? And mm. also he plays like 51 weeks a year. This is also the challenge for anybody to beat Nadal on Philippe Chatrier. Because yeah. you might win a set. As you difficult might as two. it is to challenge him in these lead-up tournaments, it's that much more difficult to, to beat a fully healthy Nadal over five sets. Mm. That has to be one of the most daunting challenges in all of sport, historically. Yeah. And it's reminiscent of beating Federer at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open during his kind of imperial period. We saw Agassi work so hard to win one set, and that was it. Um, it's like taking sets off Djokovic when he was in his dominant period. Was that your portion where you're trying to assuage each fandom? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm over fandoms. I'm just bored by it. You know what I'm bored by? And mm. I was bored by it last year, and I'm bored by it again. Is this business of... Nadal being inevitable on clay and the extension of that being that the achievement just is not that impressive. We, I feel like we talked about this a lot after Roland Garros Didn't last year. Didn't I just year. talk about it like two minutes ago? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe I'm not listening to you as uh, much today. And no. uh, now you know how it Claude, feels. Claro okay, no. Now you know. <laughs> the, just because we're not able to qualify somebody's performance in in comparison to somebody else that he's not being pushed by somebody to five sets and you can't just like i said how do you make sense of that six love six two against dominic team Mm -hmm. is it dominic playing poorly rafa being that great it's far more difficult to assess that than it is to assess a six-hour match between nadal and djokovic at the australian open right Right. And to then extrapolate and say, well, what does this mean about Nadal? What does this mean about Djokovic? And if your take on that is, well, it's just crazy to me that, okay, fine, Nadal is Nadal is that great on clay. But well, that doesn't mean it's anything. It's harder to explain. It, as, as an observer, it's harder to say, well, 6-love, six 6-2, six the other guy just must not have shown up, right? Or... It's the same thing when you see Serena win Grand Slam finals against Safina with the loss of, like, three games. You know, is it because the opponent just wasn't there? Or is this player simply too good? Like, that's hard to understand. And we've always gone to bat for Serena in that instance and the WTA by extension. Because the narrative is that the WTA just isn't that good. There aren't enough Mm -hmm. rivals. And that the champion's performance isn't super impressive because like what kind of resistance did he or she get right exactly i understand that mindset because the gaps between most professional level athletes are so small and i think the mentality is is really the deal breaker it's you know we've it's a sports cliche but like the mental strength is what creates grand slam champions there's so many talented people who never won but physically could do the job so i think 
for me, if you're not a professional athlete or you haven't played at that level, the the eye test is sometimes not enough. It's not. You know? It absolutely is not. Like, can I look at this person and say, that's a Grand Slam champion, or they played at such a stunning, stunningly high level? I don't know. Like, I, ca- I can say it, but do I have expertise? I'm trying to get at there being a, a distinct double standard in the way that Nadal is often talked about on clay, as opposed to, say, when if Federer is dominating on grass. Mm-hmm. It's a, you you get Federer elevated to God status and comfortably, and people are happy to revel in him being so far and away better than anybody. But with Nadal and Clay, it's taken almost like, okay, fine, you did that, but nobody really cares about Clay. And that's something that, <laughs> right. that's been embedded in the history of tennis. Like and I remember growing up and thinking, well, nobody gives a fuck about Clay. Like when Agassi came back and won the French in 99, it was like, oh my God, he won a Grand Slam. But okay, taken mm-hmm. against Sampras's other slams, it's not as impressive. And I think that's right. a distinct North American bias in terms and, of... Well, Anglo-American bias, I would say. Yes. Because we see Wimbledon as the most prestigious of the Grand Slam championships, but nobody plays on grass anywhere no. aside from three weeks of the year. And why is Wimbledon held in much more higher esteem as a surface grass in this day and age when it's played on maybe a few courts for one month of the season? In three or four different countries. Yeah. Yeah. There are more clay courts around the world than there are grass courts at this point. And I I love love grass court tennis. Yeah. But I think there is this matter of aesthetics that a lot of observers feel that clay tennis is just not beautiful it's not artistic it doesn't i don't know yeah, but if federer were winning the french open five years in a row it would be seen as aesthetically pleasing and beautiful you know mm-hmm. like what I, don't, I just don't understand this bias against clay is I, this is where i think it comes from because it's not new it didn't start with nadal it started long before and especially no, also- in the 90s it the surface and the tournament suffered from a string of so-called clay court specialist champions. Yes. I think if you look at in the 90s who was winning, that's part of it. A lot of South Americans, Spanish had- speakers. There's a lot of like from the UK and the Western Hemisphere, from Canada and the US, there's a lot of like, oh, those countries. Mm-hmm. So it's in Spain Portugal, Italy, like Southern Europe, who cares about that? I think there's a bit of snobbery about clay because of who excels at it and just kind of what the surface looks like. It's not seen as as literally pristine like grass tennis is. This might be a good segue into talking about Jared Donaldson because one of the defenses of Jared in, in the face of this meltdown that he had and the defense of him as a person was... Well, you know, unlike so many of the other Americans, he's actually made the effort to improve himself on clay, you know, and Mm -hmm. maybe that's why he was so frustrated in the moment that he's lost first round on a week to week basis in this clay swing, the early parts of it. And that's why he was so turned up because the the pretext here is that Americans for a long time and Pete Sampras is one of if Pete Sampras was able to play and make a final and win a French Open, I feel like so much of this U.S. narrative of clay would have been so different. Yes, and let's be clear. 
Chris Everett is the queen yes. of Roland Garros. Yes. The greatest female clay court player in history. And some of her records on clay eclipse any man's record, Vilas Nadal Borg included. But lately, over the past, I don't know. 20 years. 20 years. The U.S. hasn't been making a lot of noise on clay outside of Serena. And even that was later in her career, with the exception of 2002. Right. So we were talking about Jared Donaldson, right? Yes. <laughs> I don't even want to, I don't want to get on my high horse about this because I find the whole thing kind of amusing. You do. Not, yeah, but not in a way to like say, oh, boys will be boys or, or let him off the hook. I just think it's ridiculous. Because Jared Donaldson, of all people, like, <laughs> really? Like, Jared Donaldson. He, I thought he was like a little kitten. So what, what happened was he was questioning a mark. He ended up being right. The umpire came down to check the mark, and Jared literally stepped to him, like squared up, got in his face, like was physically imposing. And raised his voice to his face. Yeah. So the umpire kind of poked Jared ever so softly in the chest to kind of like tell him, get out of my personal space. Like you need to back up. He was just, he was trying to calm him down. Right. To be clear. Mind you, this is also the umpire who was bashed in the eyeball by Denis Shapovalov. What has he done to deserve all this? Like, I would be like, well, fuck next gen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was, watching the video was insane i i I was shocked Mm -hmm. the first thing that registers to me is an american behaving entitled and brash and to be honest rude and disrespectful as fuck overseas Mm -hmm. like there's that the trope of the american overseas the ugly american the ugly american overseas is what first came to my mind and these are stereotypes that a lot of americans want to keep telling us this is not true why do you have to associate us with that and why do you always have to default that this is a white american behaving this way but why do they have to keep proving it and why (laughs) why you know like we've been told time and again and a friend of the podcast he's been on the show michael lewis he's meant just a few weeks before this happened he was telling us about how he had such high yeah. hopes for Jared Donaldson. He's one of the good guys. And he may still be one of the good guys. But we have an instance here where one of the good guys is still behaving like this in this right. situation. So where where we left? I know. So he may yet be one of the good guys, but I haven't heard a kind of an official statement or apology coming from the Donaldson camp. I just... His father was out on Twitter responding oh, wow. to Ben Rothenberg saying that, well, what do you think, what would you do if the umpire was coming at you like the that? The umpire and assaulted yeah, him, mm-hmm. apparently. That was, uh, that was a take. <laughs> it was illuminating. It was certainly one way to look at the situation. I will <laughs> tell you this, that I am to a fault a very even-keeled person in terms of being riled by things. It takes a lot to really, to get me to that point. Mm. You know, where I have a, what, what's the term? Like, to raise your ire, Yes, okay. But one of the surest ways, historically in my life, is if somebody steps to me and gets in my face and raises the tone of their voice in 
in an angry way, in an aggressive way. Mm -hmm. Like I can't, I have no control of my response to that. Like I will go from zero to a million, not even a hundred, zero to a million in 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So I can, I watching that situation come away with thinking, my God, that umpire exercised unbelievable restraint. Mm -hmm. And the umpire's job is to de-escalate at all times, and and he did that. Yeah, he did a good job. And you you have to be prepared for emotional responses from athletes. But I can't I, I can't even remember someone like Fabio Fognini, uh, like physically stepping into an umpire's space. Certainly, he said reprehensible things, but this was surprising to me. So he was given a code violation. And after that, he just descended into a fugue state. He's I... getting ready to, to start play again. <laughs> then the umpire announces <laughs> the violation. Like, and he immediately goes, he no, said, no, no, no. You've got something against me. Supervisor, 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 supervisor. supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what did I do? What did I? I'm like, hun, just you need to take a breath. It was not a good look. Mm, no, it was not a good look. And the dude bros out here are trying to make this a referendum on Hawkeye on Clay, Lord which I have, I have to push back against because that's not what this is. That is a conversation that we can have. We can certainly have it. Should but we that, have it? I think it's hasn't all been proven that it's totally well, unreliable. There is, there is a margin of error. Yeah. There's a reason why yeah. it's not on Clay. It's not just because, oh, well, this is Clay Court Tennis. I'm just saying, I'm making the concession. We can have that conversation. Other people and maybe, can have that conversation. Yes, and maybe that conversation should be had. But that's not really what happened here. No. Because who's to say that somebody wouldn't get incensed about some other judgment call by an umpire? Other than a ball mark, right? Like if you're going to react like that to a line call, you're going to react like that to other things as well. It speaks to maturity. Yes, it speaks to, here's a big moralizing word here, decency. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you just don't interact with people like that. That's my bottom line. Yeah. I don't even want to get that serious about it because I've watched the supervisor video like a million times and and laughed every time. Why can't we get it remixed? (laughs) Oh my God. Can you imagine if somebody remade Kelly Rowland's Commander? With supervisor oh instead. My God. Oh my God, please. Another happening at Monte Carlo was Thanasi Kokonakis in his first round tripped over that cushy advertising bollard or bumper, whatever you want to call it, that was sitting on the court. So he fell over it. He, It was not a, a good fall. The video was circulating on social media. He continued the match, but after he was walking around on crutches and then revealed that he suffered a hairline fracture on his kneecap. And he's going to be out two months. Two months for tripping on this piece of advertising on the court. So the tournament director of Monte Carlo, Zelko Franulovic, said, first of all, we're not responsible, which I think legally is something that he kind of has to say in anticipation of a potential lawsuit. He's not going to admit fault now. Right? Because there were, I mean, double fault on Twitter was getting all the receipts right. <laughs> <laughs> this but, week. I mean, yeah. it's crazy how many players had issues with these things. Yes. And it's one thing if they're there on a hard court at the back of the court 
outside of Nadal and Dominic. Like, maybe not that many people play that deep into the court. Mm. But on clay, it's clay. Yes. Everybody's playing, for the most part, far behind the baseline. These are the biggest courts in tennis. And the Monte Carlo one isn't even that big for a center court. Mm. He said, Franulovic, the tournament director, said he could have also hit the fridge that is on the side or something else. I know we are totally within the rules. Sometimes even a player can trip and fall on the court itself. Can you... Listen, I've played tennis and tripped over my left toe. My left foot. No. Like, you can you can trip over your own feet. But that's, and that's your fault. That is disingenuous, is no, what it I is. I understand. I'm saying it, you can fall by yourself. You don't need all these other obstacles on the court. <laughs> the tournament director's rationale was that we were in within the rules of where you can place obstructions on the court. It was all measured out. I want to challenge the rules, first of all. And the idea that somebody could fall is disingenuous because somebody could trip and fall over their own feet. They're not going to blame the tournament. This was something that was clearly an obstruction on the court that the tournament placed there with a sponsor's name on it. It has no utility like, other than to get right. the sponsor's name out there. And so I understand that at this stage, you have to deny, deny, deny. You cannot take responsibility. You can't even apologize because that might make you open you up to liability, right? It's it's still disappointing. I think we can still complain about it. And the thing is, tennis players do not have an infrastructure through which they can stand up for player safety, right? The Players Association is toothless because it represents people like the director of Monte Carlo. There needs to be a priority place on player safety, and I don't believe that that will happen until there's a legitimately independent body that represents players. Novak Djokovic wants that to happen. I don't know if we'll ever see it, but workplace health and safety is clearly a very, very low priority. It will only be taken seriously when tournaments suffer financially or legally because of it. That's it. Capitalism is not ethical on its face. It needs to be ushered into the correct choice. Tournaments need sponsors to survive. Tennis is a niche sport. That a tournament can be successful because of its sponsors is a good thing. But this is a step too far. It's just dumb. So Kokonakis tripped on it in the first round and nobody thought to move it. I mean, because they're getting paid by that company, they probably can't move it based on some contract, right? Zverev, then picked, Zverev, Zverev picked it up and threw it away. Right. So like you, then there was still a gap between, I would say, an estimate of like three to five feet between where it was mm. placed and the back of the court. You could push it back. It was never pushed back. Every day we saw somebody else having issues with it and nothing was done. I, Where is it written that it had to be in that specific <laughs> spot? I want to know if the advertiser had uh, a contract that said it had to be at this specific spot. Probably. And if the Monte Carlo, the Rolex Masters, failed to keep it in that spot, that they would then open themselves up mm. to litigation. It just is that how sinister <laughs> and just disgusting this whole thing is. That players' safety can be compromised to such an obvious and severe extent based on some fine print in an advertiser's contract. Yes. 
to answer your question, absolutely yes, because I actually don't really think it's a consideration at all. It's not even like it's not even sinister. It's just it just is. Do you know what I mean? Like companies the world over have to be forced into taking workplace health and safety seriously, and they have for centuries. We need laws in place to enforce workplace safety. Otherwise, companies have shown that they will not take it seriously because it, it doesn't make financial sense for them. And if you work at a company, you know, every time you go in the back room, there is a piece of paper there that has two or three employees and the manager's signatures <laughs> saying this is yes. our health and safety update. That's because we have laws. Well, yes, I'm agreeing yes. with you. Tennis is, we've always in lobbied that tennis should be treated as a, a tradition, traditional, non-traditional workplace. Right. Like we should have the same rules overlap as much as possible mm -hmm. when it comes to protecting employees. We can't have the the powers that be and the advertisers and the, the tournaments running amok, lining their pockets while people are out here suffering injuries. And in the case of Kokonakis, who's been oft injured, jeopardizing his career mm. for what? Right. Especially after... What was it? Was it last year when Golfan tripped yeah, over the tarp at, at, at Roland Garros? It just it looks bad. After Thanasi tripped, the things are still there. I'm like, are you serious? You have not moved it since then. A quick run through of the Fed Cup action because that was what was happening in women's tennis this past weekend. the The Fed Cup final is going to be contested between perennial favorites, Czech Republic. And last year's winner, the United States of America. Yeah. Czech Republic has won, I think, six times in the Petra Kvitova era. And she hasn't even played all those times. But she is just the best player in an incredibly deep lineup. The Czech team beat Germany, as it turned out, pretty easily. It was thought to be the marquee matchup of the entire tournament this year, even with the final coming up. <laughs> like, this was the one. Right. Because you had Yulia Gerges and Angelique Kerber competing against Pliskova and Kvitova. Right, so you have top singles players facing off. But Petra Kvitova silenced the German team, basically. She made this, this tie fairly routine, beating Kerber and Gerges in straight sets. Yulia Gerges got Germany's only point, beating Karolina Pliskova. Kerber is going to have to turn around and play Kvitova in the first round of Stuttgart. Oh my lord. Like If there was one tournament I have FOMO about this year, it's Stuttgart. Because <laughs> the matchups and the field is lit. We have a, a Garcia-Sharapova first round. Mm -hmm. But what we saw this past weekend was so many of the top women turned out for Fed Cup. Very few took the weekend off. Simona Halep represented for Romania. We had the Australian team winning. Australia beat the Netherlands. Stam Stozer, my word, uh, was chosen by Alicia Malik to go in the first set of rubbers and lost her match in straight sets to somebody ranked outside the top 200. Mm. I watched her lose in Charleston. It was it was depressing. It wasn't for a lack of trying or will. 
but she wasn't able to do it in Charleston and she wasn't able to do it on home soil in Fed Cup this time around. And she was uh, overlooked for the return singles matches as well. Australia was able to get the job done. Canada behind two singles wins from Jeannie Bouchard. Yeah, over Tsurenko and Bondarenko of Ukraine. Um, she was psyched to be there and to play for Canada. And that's the nicest thing I'll say about Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> she was asked in her, she was given a compliment in her pre-Fed Cup press conference. And she made some quip about, oh, you know, it'd be nice if I got that kind of respect or or acknowledgement from my local press. Mm. It's like, well, I'd, uh, I don't know. don't really know what to say I there, Jeannie. Really, I don't really know what more you want. Uh, I don't know. It's we're years removed from your best note, Jeannie. This is, uh, <laughs> this is the point where your results will dictate a lot. The, the, the matchup that I thought was gangbusters this weekend was Great Britain against Japan in Japan. And we had Kurumi Nara and Naomi Osaka as the two singles players for Japan, winning one match each. Naomi beat Heather Watson, and then Joe Kanta beat Naomi. And Heather Watson lost both matches hmm. before Japan won their doubles match to, to secure the tie. The USA, they beat France. And Miss Sloane Stevens, she not only secured the bag, but she secured the tie. She made up for her performance last fall in a big way. She beat Parmentier in uh, in a three-set match and then just clotted Kiki Mladenovic. Oh Are we allowing you to speak Patois <laughs> and curse in Jamaican on the podcast? Are you? I don't Have know. Have we gotten to that point? Are you going to censor that part? I, I don't know. We shall see. I, she just, she destroyed Kiki Mladenovic. I think it was like 6-2-6 love, right? If you were following Mladenovic's social media, you'd have thought that she had just won five Olympic gold medals based on her output from that one <laughs> single match she, that she, she won. She beat Colleen. She did. And Colleen, as you know, was the Fed Cup hero at the end of last year. She, I mean, she led the USA to the title, basically. So the USA is back in the final. Sloane Stevens, good for her. Sloane is, I mean, she is in in a form that should be feared, probably. You know, winning... Probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, winning Miami, playing Fed Cup like this, I think her confidence is just ramping up. And, I mean, Sloane with confidence is very dangerous, as we saw uh -huh. at the US Open, at Miami... We saw her win the U.S. Open. We saw her struggle for quite a few months after oh, yeah, that. Yeah. And maybe this is a Sloan who is more comfortable with being a big-time titleist and uh, may not be cowed by big, big moments anymore, mm. won't go through a slump like she did the last time. Right. Maybe uh, we've, we've talked on this podcast about how all-encompassing her game is. And if she's ready to run with it, let's let's uh, take a back seat and just watch. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we keep getting called up by Sloan Hive, because I thought we had made peace. I thought we had signed the Treaty of Versailles. Um, they just keep coming. Specifically. We were subtweeted by one of our closest one of our friends, friends. Somebody who we've of, met in person. We shared drinks. 
we've <laughs> one of our closest Twitter friends subtweeted us today, and I was so disappointed. It was because uh, listen, don't come for me unless I send for you, and you were not sent for. Twirl, twirl on that. <laughs> Like, we're really just over here minding our own damn business, being nice to Sloan, making peace, mending fences, and this happens. You were sleeping and I saw it, <laughs> and I DM'd you so you'd see when you wake up, I was like, the fuck is this? <laughs> right. <laughs> For once. Uh, like, like I said, I am bored of the fandom thing, I'm trying to stay out of it, and I'm trying to just speak truth in my life. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Darko Gernkroff, you mentioned him. This is a segment that I wanted to have because <laughs> we were so, so kind to Mr. Darko in the wake of his exposure. Mm-hmm. When his mask was ripped off. When his wig was snatched. Mm-hmm. When the emperor was revealed to have no clothes. The emperor? Or like the court jester. <laughs> the point is like Darko you're out here exposed as fuck rather than be a little bit conciliatory or low key low profile you've decided to wheel and come again he's just ramped it up by stealing everybody's shit every single tweet that comes out of Darko Gernkarov's fingers is plagiarized and stolen from a t-shirt that you can buy on yes. amazon.com and it's very obvious like they're just sort of bland little jokes that you know you can find on like these these massive twitter accounts that like steal other people's jokes mm-hmm. you know and the the one that really had me enraged and howling at the same time was when he tweeted, I hate when websites ask, are you human? No, I'm a vacuum. Darko, newsflash, we do not know if you are a human. And if you are in fact human, we don't know who that human is, what he looks like. Are you To Darko? this day, are we don't Dar- know what Darko looks like. Well, he keeps posting pictures now, but I still don't know if that's really him. Or he's who po- is him? He's posting them until he receives a cease and desist. This is way existential. Because, like, who is Darko real? Is the person behind the Darko Twitter account actually that person who has an ITF profile? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Is, Did he? Will the real Darko please stand up? Please oh stand up. Oh, my lord. <laughs> We were willing to get behind the idea of the idea of <laughs> a Darko and what that Darko a few months ago represented. That yeah. Darko is lost at sea. We don't know that that Darko does not exist anymore. And while I w- I refused to give in to this feeling of being duped, you know, or <laughs> <laughs> is that being, out of pride? Being told that oh well, y'all were stupid. Y'all were duped. I wasn't even concerned about that. I honestly, I swear, I swear, I did not care about that mm-hmm. at all. Right. But now, this is just many steps too far, Darko. Like, he still has a check mark, right? Yeah. And why? He has but why? 60 something thousand followers on Twitter. I don't understand. Well, he follows like almost as much, though. Yes. But still, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand who he is. I don't understand the people who 
have followed him and are still like, yes, girl, that's so funny. <laughs> and are are those accounts all fake too? I that's don't what understand. I don't. Are they bots? It's, I don't understand. This is what I'm saying. It's all a step too far for me. I just cannot. Je can't. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> We've got to talk about this Caroline Wozniacki story that came from Simon Briggs. She opened up a bit about the incidents in Miami. James Blake, the tournament director of Miami, commented extensively on the situation on Tennis Nerd Podcast, gave his side of the story uh, a kind of a a more complete picture of what happened behind the scenes at Miami. Mm -hmm. So absolutely go listen to that because you need the full context to be able to really rightfully opine on the situation. Mm -hmm. Caroline, what annoyed a lot of people, including myself, and I have to concede that I may have read into more than what was there. It seemed in the interview that she was comparing her experience in Miami to James Blake's experience with the NYPD. And again, I have to concede, if it was the writer who set up that analogy, then so be it. There was definitely some editorializing right. with the way that article was written. There, there was. It was not good journalism, to be clear. (laughs) To be fair. But listen, it says, he writes, Wozniacki's disappointment was only accentuated by the offhand response of the Miami Open's new director, James Blake. After Wozniacki posted a statement on social media detailing the abuse and calling on the tournament to, quote, take this seriously, Blake replied with a bland and apparently unconcerned statement saying that security and officials, quote, never witnessed nor were they notified of any specific threats made to players or their families. This is Journalism 101. You do not say shit like Blake replied with a bland and apparently unconcerned statement. Like, what is that? Well, like UK and European journalism has different conventions as well, to be fair. Like, there is a lot more editorializing and more opinion in Mm. these kind of newsy stories right it's just it's just a different way of doing journalism okay. so i don't want to discount that. that's the paragraph that precedes wozniacki's statement that says the way that miami was was really not good said wozniacki james blake has been through these things himself and i would have hoped that he would have had taken a stance but he didn't and that's that i've just tried to forget the whole thing but I think it was important that I spoke up and said something about it because I don't think it was okay. This issue is your quintessential multiple things are true. Don't you think? <laughs> it is. Because we talked about extensively how this was not okay. It was horrible. Whatever Caroline experienced, what her family experienced, even what she perceived was going on, was not acceptable. We saw a video of her talking to her dad on court, and they were obviously talking about what was going on in the right. stands. And so, again, like, Caroline has complained to umpires before, but has never gone on about the crowd like this. Clearly something was afoot. So, in that case, I, I believe her. And no tennis player should have to endure that. Now, what I object to, even if it's implicit, is the comparison to James Blake's treatment by the NYPD, which is symptomatic of systemic and structural racism. 
that black people experience in the United States. I don't expect Caroline to understand that, the history of that, but I expect a little sensitivity. What we're hearing from James Blake on the Tennis Nerd podcast is that Caroline never made him and the tournament aware about the threats, the death threats, the abuse, all that nasty stuff that she and her family and her fiancé and her fiancé's nieces experienced. Right? When Mm -hmm. we were very critical of James Blake and his statement on a previous podcast saying it was not nearly enough because of what we were responding to as far as what Caroline put out there. Now we're hearing from James Blake as to what he said happened to him as a tournament director and how he was able to deal with things and what the contingencies were based on the information that was in front of him. And so stuff is not matching up, right? We're hearing one thing from Caroline, we're hearing one thing from James, and this is being fought in the court of public opinion. I'm always want to side with the aggrieved, mm-hmm. and I still side with Caroline, and I do believe that that stuff happened, but this business of her, let's be frank, comparing what she went through to what James went through as a clearly racially motivated attack against the backdrop of what it's like to be a black man in America is not on. And it's, for my mind, a step too far. That's like a theme of this episode, Mm. I think. It's just a step (laughs) too far. And I have to say that I I was inclined to think that this was true because... I, I think back to Caroline's minstrel show performance when she did an impression of Serena Williams and stuffed her clothes and did this just really horrifying pantomime of a black woman. Which, which and, has been largely forgotten. Right. And I mean, again, like Serena was, she kind of looked past it, their friends, like, I'm certainly not going to sit here and tell a black woman how she's supposed to respond to that sort of thing. She didn't look it's past none of it. My business. She sanctioned it. Right. Yeah, and that's her want and right. her that's her business. I'm just saying in these sort of incidents like I'm not going to I'm not going to forget it if Caroline's name comes up again. again this right? is the context. Yeah. Like if you're using that what James went through as a, a horrifying thing you're just minding your business outside of a hotel and people come, police, target you because they've mixed you up with another similarly looking black man. As similar as black people can look for white people. Mm-hmm. Right? And we've, <laughs> like, we've gone through this before. Yeah, and it, you, it wasn't just an arrest. No, it they was tackled, tackled him, to the ground. They humiliated him. Like, it, it was fucking awful. Against right. the context of everything that's happened in the last five years mm-hmm. with police brutality against black people. And it's the disproportionality yes. applied to black people. And then to casually, casually say, well, I, I would think that because he's been through these things, what are these things? And so the thing what is, like, are these things? I don't, I don't want people to take from this that, oh, I think Caroline is racist. I think she is self-involved above everything. I don't think it's racism. I think it is completely 100% self-serving. 
in every way. Absolutely. You know? Yes. Like, that's it. That's it. And also and being totally unaware. I mean, I say this, Lord, this is going to get me in trouble. But it's, it's just not very smart. It's not street smart. It's not worldly smart. It's not being cultured. It's not like you, you are famous for being BFFs with one of the most visible black people in the world. But that is not cred for you to be able to make this leap to, self your, to serve your own self-interest. Yeah. I don't think that's controversial. I just said she's not smart. <laughs> you said it was not smart. Okay. That, that maneuver was not smart. You didn't say she was not smart. But it's this, it's, this, it's this thing that keeps happening where there's so many truths that she can put forth, but there's this poison pill always. Well, that's the thing. It's that she had the high ground. She did. You know? <laughs> like, she had a... This is like... Uh, when you're in... You've been in battles before with people where stuff is murky, stuff is fraught, there multiple things are true... It's, a, it's an antagonistic situation. And the moment you realize you have the higher ground on something, like you identify it, you are not seeding that. Mm-hmm. Like you, you cling to that for dear life. And she just wantonly, just brazenly threw it all away. <laughs> so at the risk of beating a dead horse here, I wanted to make clear... Because I tweeted something that got a lot of play, but also got a lot of pushback from Caroline fans. And the distinction for me between Blake and Wozniacki is that Caroline had a, a horrible night. It was, mm-hmm. it was horrible. It was, we do not want to muddy that. We still believe that it however, was a horrible situation. However, that is abusive, but I need to make the distinction between systemic abuse, systemic racism, and one person's terrible experience. They're not equivalent. No, they're, they're not. They're simply not. It And it's disappointing that she refuses to see that. And I'm not even willing to get into the whole business of, well, James said this, she said that, James said this, she says that. I still believe her. No, because I think we have to take James's statements with a grain of salt as well, because he is representing a tournament and img is also the people who run that tournament and representing his own self-interest as a first-time tournament director right so he has other considerations Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that he's lying but he 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 may be telling 100 percent the truth and she may be telling 100 percent her truth those two Mm. things could be true i can't say whether Caroline should have said this or done that or communicated better with the Miami Open because I don't know what happened. So he says, she said at this point, we can only go with like the blatantly absurd things that have happened <laughs> in its wake. Like I, I mm. absolutely cannot believe that she would undercut her position like that by saying something like that. Yeah. And why it's, it's also doubly disappointing and also why I'm doubly less inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt with this statement is because of her history with the minstrel show. Yeah. That shit is real. That is lived for black women all the time, historically speaking. And to have a woman, a white woman, perform Serena's physical attributes so extravagantly with that smile on her face. (laughs) 
Yeah. It, <laughs> and then oy, oy, and oy. then move on with her life without ever having to grapple with it. Yeah. This is what was really galling. Yeah. Yeah. And to not have to grapple with what she said in this this interview as well. Like it's just a casual self-serving aside. Mm. Whereas the 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 ramifications are so much greater for other people. A Twitter mutual of ours, Hypotamuse, wrote a fascinating and very well-written story about John Isner, about politics, the alt-right, about the mainstreaming of far-right views. I highly recommend you check it out. We will link it in this episode. I just wanted to drop it in there. And it's especially timely after John Wortham yet again equivocates on Tennis Sandgren in his Wednesday mailbag. Mm-hmm. Yet another disappointment. <laughs> That's all we're going to say. Moving on to greener pastures, we're going to end this episode with Grownish. This is we. Watch out, world, I'm grown now. I'm grown. <laughs> Learning something new every day. <laughs> the theme song is Fire. <laughs> I could listen to it on loop. It's the best theme song. Whoever wrote that, give them the EGOT, all of them together. <laughs> Gronish is the spinoff of Blackish. Mm-hmm. If you don't know, Zoe got her own A Different World. Yeah, and I'm surprised at how adult it is. Like, it, they it, did not shy away from yeah. making this young woman deal with grown-up mm-hmm. shit. It's very much like a Generation Z show. Mm-hmm. It's it's distinct from us, from millennials, and it's uh it's fairly open about college life. I think it is really really. And like it's, it. it also presents her as a character totally different from what we. Totally different, but at the same time, very similar mm. to who we knew her as on Blackish. Mm-hmm. And it captures. It's not Lisa the, Bonet. No, but it captures the potential growth and the exposure that one does when you leave from being in the family nest to being on your own in college. Mm-hmm. I think it's very smart in that way. So, all that smart stuff aside, <laughs> you wanted to talk about something not smart. Yeah, because this is one of the few shows where given your limited nine to five TV watching schedule <laughs> that you finished before me. So yeah. I just caught up over the weekend and we wanted to, in the spirit of Dr. Scholes, we had this on the agenda before he went and called us out on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe we shouldn't go ahead. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> He's given us quite a few fuck, Mary kills in the past with respect to tennis players. And we're going to do one for the suitors of Zoe on Gronish. Being Aaron, who is the kind of uh Well, he's the like woke, the militant woke bay. Yeah. But still has a rat tail and dresses like a douchebag. Yeah, what is with the rat I tail don't understand. is back? I don't is understand. it back? It's back on him, that's it. <laughs> Luca, who is your emo artistic Jaden Smith. Yes, but very smart and, you know, treats Zoe well intellectually, I think. Mm, Okay. And Cash, who is the basketball superstar. Yeah, who is about to be drafted, maybe go number one and be a superstar. Do you have... I'm having trouble. Have you figured out your rankings? It was so easy for me. Fuck, Mary kill. Okay. Go on. I would kill both Aaron and Cash and... You can't... That's cheating. (laughs) okay fine i would well you know this presupposes that marrying is the goal 
Mm-hmm. This is the inherent problem they did with one. this. They did one on the show, too. They did in yeah. the finale. I want nothing to do with Cash. Zoe, in, if I'm Zoe, if I'm me, where I'm broke and don't got no money, I might just marry and fuck Cash. <laughs> because that payday <laughs> might be worth something. Yes. But Zoe don't need that money. So I would kill Cash. Now you don't need none of that life, right? Mm-hmm. Then I guess I would fuck Aaron. Okay. Because I guess he's hot if you were to reform the aesthetics of it. Mm-hmm. Like the rat tail notwithstanding. She's also made herself very clearly interested in him from episode one. Yeah. And he has not brought her or carried her anywhere. And now he's coming with the sub story in the finale that, oh, you know, I was such an idiot. I didn't know how to express myself. Like, dude, you are not a freshman in college. Well, he's at least a sophomore, right? Sophomore or junior. You're this big guy on campus. Like, if you want to be with this girl, you let her know. Like, stop acting a fool. Like, I'm not here for that. And for my mind, I would marry Luca because Luca, they share something in common, which is very important. They're both into fashion. He challenges her both professionally and intellectually because Zoe needs a lot of challenging. Like, she grew up with Dre as her father. (laughs) And she's extremely privileged. Yeah. Mm. And so their clash of worlds is something that's utile for her in her growth in this very specific Mm. time in her life. And yes, Luca has lots of problems with him. Like, he's very snobbish. He thinks he's better than people, which I'm sure you can relate to. (laughs) What the fuck? Again, I'm just sitting over here minding my own business. And I don't care for the grooming of the facial hair. But I like his aesthetic. I like his swag. I like that he can potentially get over himself to be there emotionally for Zoe. I mm-hmm. think so. Okay, you have talked enough. Mm-hmm. I would fuck Cash for obvious reasons. I would kill Luca, the one you married. <laughs> you married him? I married no, him. No, I, I would sure kill did. him. He's pretentious. He's annoying. I would just get so tired of it. I could never, I could not spend a lifetime with him. He could paint murals of my face all over the Mm -hmm. walls. No, 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 no. And I would marry Aaron because I have a soft spot for like better dead than red. (laughs) Left wing. He's incensed. He's angry about a lot of things. His politics are not entirely formed yet. He has like those hotep tendencies, which I don't like. When you say entirely formed, his politics aren't entirely formed, do you mean they're performative? Sure. (laughs) Which I'm not about that line. No, but I think he has a lot of beliefs that he doesn't know how to put together quite yet. Also wrapped up with a lot of dude broness. That's what I'm saying. Those tendencies I don't like, but I'm, I'm all about like a black Trotsky. I'd be down oh. with it. Hmm. <laughs> I think you gave him way too much credit. I'm just saying, the alternatives are not that great. So you don't find Luca cute at all? No. Not at all? Not at all. With his wispy facial hair, I'm just not into it. Lord. <laughs> now, you This know. is one of the few things we've so greatly disagreed on, on this mm-hmm. podcast. Do one with Riverdale, and I think we would disagree again. Oh, let's do it right now. Oh. Yes, yeah, so do it. Archie, Reggie... And Kevin. Kevin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Marry Kevin. That's easy. He can sing. He outshines these mediocre straight people at every turn, but doesn't get the credit. I'm with it. Re- fuck Reggie. Like, 
no ifs, ands, or buts. <laughs> Follow him on Instagram for real. Like, you're welcome. And Archie Ken just did. Archie can't sing. He is... Can't act. He certainly can't he's act. He's a brown shirt. He's part of the private militia of this organized crime boss who broke up a protest. Fuck Archie. Like, Archie is dead to me. He's a fascist. Bye. And I don't want to hear his terrible singing ever again. Are we... We were supposed to disagree on this? Oh. I do not disagree with you at all. (laughs) I'm just still... I'm still here thinking about Reggie. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, shall we? Yes. Thanks for listening. To the folks who've given us reviews on iTunes lately, thank you so much. To the folks who've reached out via Twitter, email, again... Thank you so much. Those interactions mean everything to us. We encourage them. We solicit them. Email us at thebodyserve at gmail.com if you do not have Twitter. Because we've come to the realization that not everybody uses Twitter. Mm -hmm. Which is fine. Email us. Let us know what you think of the show, suggestions, all that stuff. I'm on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at thebodyserve on Twitter. Same on Instagram. Till next time.